Green. I'm a librarian at Butler Library down at the Morningside campus of Columbia. I'm the librarian for Ancient and Medieval History, but I'm also the librarian for the Graphic Novels Collection, which is a collection I began in 2005. And I was fortunate enough to meet this man a few years ago uh, at something called the Wildcat Comic Con at the Pennsylvania College of Technology in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And uh, I was supposed to interview him. I was supposed to do a, a session very much like this, and I prepared the slideshow. It's very much like the slideshow you'll see tonight. And uh, he didn't show up. <laughs> and he didn't show up because the organizers were not very good. And they had scheduled his flight from Michigan to land in William, to land in Harrisburg, which was an hour and a half away, just about when we were supposed to start talking. <laughs> so when he did arrive, it was after all the events of the day were over, and uh, he contacted the organizer and said, well, is anybody kind of hanging out in the bar? And uh, he showed up, and I, I'll tell you, I was exhausted, because two days before the Comic-Con, uh, the keynote speaker had pulled out, and I'd been asked to give the keynote address, which I wrote on the bus to Williamsport, and until like two or three in the morning, and I had to deliver it at eight in the morning. Hell gives the keynote address at eight in the morning. Um, and I was exhausted, so by the evening, I was certain that I was just going to go back to my room and collapse, but I thought, well, let me meet David. And we ended up talking until midnight. <laughs> you drinking? Uh, you drink. I drink. I drink. <laughs> I'm, I'm more of a water person. Uh, so, and we just hit it off, and then he was supposed to do a panel on his own the next day, and we ended up doing this, this shtick that we've got. So we're going to do this shtick for you. And I get a, a little, uh, a little advanced thing here. Oh, look, it works. Oh, well, you know, you can, well, actually, I'm going to need these. Yeah, you might want to turn it in. So um, David mentioned that he's a, a children's book author and illustrator for the most part. You may not know he's won the Caldecott Award three times. 97, 2001, and 2013, which is, anybody else ever done that? Well, it's actually two honors, which is like two silvers and one gold. So it's like three Olympic medals. Okay. <laughs> two of them are silver and one's gold. But I, yeah, I think maybe one or two people have done that. Well, as far as I'm concerned, it's three Calicots, and that's awesome. <laughs> Uh, he has an MFA from Yale. He's been writing and illustrating since 1981, but drawing since he was two years old. Uh, he started out thinking he would be a writer. And in school and college, you turned to art. Why is that? Um, when I was a young man in college, freshman in college, I had some plays put on a storefront professional theater in Detroit, but it was, a, it was the 60s and all sorts of little storefront theaters were springing up here and there. And my plays were put on, they were, they were well reviewed. Um, I thought that I had a future as a playwright. And then my roommate, who was a really excellent photographer, um, he was, we had been rooming together in this old house for two years and he was going off to another school, and the night before he left, he got drunk. And he said, 
David, I have to tell you something. Um, he said, I think, you know, I've seen all your plays. I've watched you working away here in the kitchen with your typewriter day after day. I've read everything you've left me read. And I think, quite frankly, that the little doodles that you make when you're talking on the telephone are so much better than anything <laughs> you've He said, I think you ought to switch your major to art. And I said, well, you know, fuck you too. <laughs> and then the next day, after he was gone, and I could begin to think about it, I felt like this huge pile of cinder blocks had been lifted off my shoulder. Because writing, even though I really, really wanted to be a writer, especially a playwright, I wanted to be the new Tennessee Williams, Edward Albee, you know, I, I found it very, I found it so hard to, to sit there and typewriter and make myself finish anything. But drawing, to me, was so easy that uh, it never occurred to me that, it could make, that I could make a career out of it. So that's, I almost instantly just switched into art and never looked back. Do you feel like he gave you permission to make that, that change? I think you once said that you felt like writing was worthier because it was harder for you, but that made it more of a, an accomplishment and drawing was so easy for you that it seemed like a kind of a cheat. So do you feel like that statement by your roommate kind of opened a door that you had forced shut? Absolutely, and it sort of gave me a taste for truth-telling, too, <coughs> hard as it may be. You know, <laughs> uh, he had the, the ego and the chutzpah and the you know, megalomania to tell everybody the truth about themselves. But he was actually very, very sharp, too. Did he have a lot of friends? <laughs> no. <laughs> he was extremely ambitious, and he just wiped everybody out of his own way. Still the same way. Um, how many people have read Stitches? Oh, excellent. Well, then we don't really have to do much more than that, do you, do we? Are we over? Let's just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's see. Um, so let's just look at some specific things. Uh, this is uh, near the end, I believe, of the book. Uh, yeah, let's see by the page count. <laughs> Back near the end of the book. And this is your father turning to you and saying, I gave you cancer. Is he confessing guilt in having done it because he realized he, does, he did it? Or is he uh, revealing his fear that he might have done it, that he is in some way responsible? Does he know he's responsible or is he afraid he's responsible? He knew he was responsible. He knew um, <clears throat> this lump was considered was found in my neck, or you know, noticed in my neck when I was eleven, I guess, or twelve. I was taken immediately to a urine, nose, and throat friend of his, another osteopath, and uh, you know, felt around there, and then. And then he said, this is nothing but a cyst, and we don't have to worry about it. it. Might get a little bigger, but you know, let's wait till school vacation, and uh, when it's convenient, you know, you take, we, we'll take it out. So they waited four years. <laughs> Meantime, I'm, you know, becoming a young man, and uh, you can imagine what it did to my social life to have this thing like an eggplant on the side of my neck. Um, but I learned to wear turtlenecks a lot, and 
I had some friends, but um, you know, it was it was obviously sort of grotesque. And uh, so finally, one Christmas occasion, they decided to open it up, and this guy did the operation. And the best thing he ever did for me was when he saw what was in there, because it had grown up, it had grown around my vocal cords and down around my thyroid. He sewed it up immediately, and I think. Everybody, all the doctors involved, including my father, understood that this was what they were all beginning to learn about, which was cancer, thyroid cancer um, given by high-dose radiation for 450 to 500 grams of treatment. You know, when you go to the dentist, you get a little x-ray, you get a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a rad and it's very focused, but in those days, the x-rays just went all over the place. So, um, yeah, he knew what he had done, but he never talked about it. I, I was given a second operation um, by a man who knew what he was doing, George Crow, I think, Cleveland. I condensed that in the book to make the operations happen, you know, within, as they did, within a matter of days, but at the same hospital, because it, you know, it just would have confused this is where memoir has to tell little white lies, you know, to, to, to it would have taken another 20 pages to talk about going Telling a story, not just telling more stories. Exactly. And trying to make it comprehensible. So, um, they never told me I was dying, though they knew I was. Uh, my father didn't even, wasn't even there the night of the second operation. It was quite... I don't know, I think it was pretty certain that I was gonna die. Uh, my mother came and came to Cleveland with me and came into that room and, and asked me this very strange question. She said, what can I get you? And I thought she meant, you know, a snack or something. And I said, nothing. And she said, I, did, I really mean it. I'll get you anything you want. And I look out the window and it's black outside. It's like after 10 at night. And I'm, I said, I don't know what you're talking about. She said, I wanna get you something. And I, I said, okay, there's a copy. The, the dirtiest book out then was called Peyton Place. And I had had all my books censored and even burned by my mother until that moment. And I said, get me a copy of Peyton Place. Uh, or Lolita, whatever it was I was reading. It was Lolita. And she's, I said, I saw it in the, in, the, in the gift shop downstairs. She went downstairs, she got this copy of the book, she came and threw it on my bed and walked out. And it was like, I, I was so, it was such a strange thing to, uh, that she had done that. I felt, golly, maybe she's recognizing that I'm a grown-up, finally. But then in the morning after the operation, the book was gone. And I suddenly realized that was so strange. And in fact, she was, it was like she was giving me my last request, you know. And once I really found out what was going on, I realized I, I, I died. I was at my own funeral. And nobody came. Nobody was there. And, uh, you know, that leaves a little scar, too, that kind of feeling. But when my dad told me that I had cancer, that he had given it to me, because I found out I had cancer, like the very Bergman-esque kind of scene in the film, in the Bergman film, I read a letter that said that I had cancer. 
was a letter from, from my mother to her mother. And so I knew, so I kept it a secret too. And then one night my dad took me out to dinner and he, and he took me for a walk down by the river and he says, I gave you cancer. And then he walks away from me and he lights up a cigarette and looks at the water. And I realized he, he was like just sort of getting it off his chest. And I must say, uh, poor dad, his, his career kind of went downhill from then on. I don't think he was a great doctor to begin with. But that's when the three martini lunches began and then going back to the hospital to read x-rays for the rest of the afternoon. Who knows how the other people he <laughs> helped. Um, anyway. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, in the book, you do a lot of um, cross-cutting close-ups of eyes. Uh, this is a scene from early on where you're looking at a, a bottle, a fetus, in the hospital corridor, and it uh, begins to take on uh, more animated characteristics. But you, you go back and forth, eyes, back and forth, cross-cutting between your eyes, the eyes of other people, back and forth, back and forth. Can you talk a little bit about why you employed that technique, uh, what influenced you? I know you're a, a huge film fan, so perhaps you could talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, a lot of the, yeah, I'd love to talk about the filmic quality of the book. Um, one of the best things my editor at W.W. Uh, Norton, Bob Wilde, one of the best things he said to me during the three years I was doing the final art on this book was he said, uh, he knew I was having organizational problems because it was my memories, it was my life, and I was finding it very difficult to put them into a, into a readable form. And he said, David, I think you ought to think about your book in symphonic terms. I said, what did you mean? He said, he said, I think you should think about using light motifs, like in an opera. Um, you know, that device, that musical device where, uh, say you're watching, or ballet, ballet, let's take Prokofiev, uh, Romeo and Juliet. When, when Juliet comes on, this, the violins play a certain theme. And so that becomes Juliet's theme, you identify that with her. So even when she's not on stage, if that theme is played, you think about Juliet again. And so I, I, I immediately understood what Bob was talking about because I've been doing this for years in my picture book work. And of course, I've been noticing it for years in, in my film watching because I've been studying film as an art form since I was uh, 18 or so. Um, it was actually one of the ways my analyst got me to talk to it. We can talk about that later. To, to talk about movies. So one of the light motifs that runs throughout stitches is the, the theme of eyes. Eyes that are uh, often obscured by light on the lens of the glasses. Um, eyes like the eyes here. Wait, there's a, well, okay, so there's a close-up of David's eyes, close-up of what he's looking at, this little man in a jar. David's six at this point, you don't know what he's looking at. In fact, I, this is the only memory I had when I started my memoirs. I didn't think I even had a story. And I could remember that terrifying moment in that quiet, closed down uh, hallway in the pathology department. And um, I think what scared the hell out of me 
more than the fact that this was a little person floating in what looked like onion soup in a jar. I think it reminded, it reminded me of myself because he was a, a, a little man with a big head, <coughs> this very, very angry expression on his face. It was so bald. And so then there's a sort of medium close-up of my eyes scanning again what I'm seeing, seeing closer. And then this fantasy of his eye opening and looking at mine. And if you read the book, you'll notice that whenever, I never, I tried to eliminate language as much as, I, as much as possible. The last thing I wanted to do was put labels on things like that and say things like, you know, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's looking at me. It's so pointless. And uh, I hate text in picture books. Yeah. So to show it, Things that are actually happening in the book in real time, you know, are surrounded by a black line. And if it's a fantasy or a dream, that so often happens, the line disappears and the edges get fuzzy. But it's treated the same way. And for me, that's a that's sort of a way of saying something about the way I feel about my life, especially the first 50 years of it. That my dreams and my life were so intertwined that I couldn't see the barrier between them all. Yeah, going back to the, the notion that film was such a huge influence, and, and you're mentioning that uh, real time is in the panel and fantasy is borderless, you don't read a lot of comics. You're not a huge comics reader. No. So you had to devise this visual rhetoric of the layout of the page on your own. How did you, how did you approach that? I tried one way, tried another way, and then thought, I didn't want to be too obvious about it. I wanted to actually draw people into the situation. So it might take a, a second reading to realize, oh, yeah, when the, when the thing jumps out of the jar and chests and down the hall, it's a fantasy, because <laughs> the edges are, you know, I didn't want to do it too obviously or pointedly. I wanted to draw you into it, so it just seemed like a, a good, Good advice. Um, and also, you know, the films of Louis Bunuel often blend reality and dreams, and he never makes a break between them. That's true. Like, you know, like in um, Belle du Jour, mm -hmm. you suddenly know she's dreaming because you hear these horse bells, the sleigh bells, in the background, and it suddenly that, it, that's the leitmotif and the signal that's telling you. Yeah, now we're in a dream. So you talked a little bit about uh, the use of eyes and the use of light, reflecting on lenses, obscuring the eyes, and sometimes being revealed. And it's when you read the book, as as you all know, uh, you'll notice that whenever the eyes are visible in any of these people who wear glasses, it's extremely significant. So can you talk a little bit about? I think it's probably something I also came upon by accident. Um, <clears throat> I just noticed myself a lot of times not drawing their eyes. Um, and uh, maybe leaving it for later. Mm -hmm. And then just not doing it because 
if you can't see what if you cannot see a person's eyes, just as you just as when you don't know what they're thinking because they're not saying anything, you don't know what they're thinking. If you can't see their eyes, you don't know what they're up to. And the minute you change the light situation here and you can see grandma, you realize we're dealing with something very malevolent here. It's not just a person who's mad because you didn't eat her dry spaghetti. She's she's curious. She's holding something in. And in, in, in this case, it's all about, it's not even about me. It wasn't about her grandchild. It was about her daughter telling her grandson in, in, some, you know, in so many words, my mother's stupid and I don't want to be like her and I don't want you to be like her. But my mother never said any of that. It just came out because of that. It came out with something you heard it. You know, the dinner tables. When, when we spoke in Pennsylvania, I had these two slides, this slide and then the subsequent slide of when your mother comes to pick you up. Yeah. And I, I commented on these were parallels in that they were both situations where the eyes were obscured until that final panel. But you pointed out that the faces are the same, except for the, the motivating emotion where one is this kind of rage and the other is fear. You're talking about my mother's face and my and grand grandmother's face. Yeah, they're very similar uh, physically. Um, but yeah, she's, um, this is preceded by a scene in the dark where my mother sneaks into the room and she's undressing. She thinks I'm asleep. I sit up in bed. And I asked her if she's going away again tomorrow. She says, I don't know. And I said, I don't want you to go away. And she said, why not? And I said, because I'm afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of grandma. And then she clicks on the light. And then suddenly we're bathed in light, but her eyes are still hidden. And she says, what happened? Tell me what happened. And I said, she's crazy. And my mother slapped her fingers of her hand across my mouth because that creak, creak has been used before. You know that means somebody's coming up the stairs in Grandma's house. And you can see from the expression on, even on this bad slide that you can't see the expression on it, you can see that her eyes are open, they're visible, and that she is afraid too. But instead of talking about it, or instead of, um, you know, my mother always talked about her mother as a wonderful woman who took such good care of her. And yet, she was terrified of her. It's very clear. Yeah. And, uh, and when she ended up in a, I didn't even know my, mother, my grandmother had been to, I didn't know for six years she was dead. And I didn't know how she died in an insane asylum. Uh, because she tried to kill her husband. So we're dealing with a sociopath in the family here. And, uh, and not talking about it and handing down the same kind of behavior. Well, I was about to say, do you think your mother feared that she had these same qualities but was trying to deal with them in a different way? You know, Karen, at one point, um, I had been working on this book for two years. I called up Bob Wild and I said, Bob, I'm scrapping everything I've done. I didn't have a terrible childhood. 
It was my mother who had the terrible child. And he said, I, I don't agree with you, but what, what are your plans? And I said, well, I think I want, it should be about her. And so I tried that, but um, it turned out that it was impossible for me to write anything about my mother because I didn't know anything about her. I don't know how she felt about her mother, except she forgot to tell me she was dead for six years. And then, you know, and then in this very matter-of-fact voice told me how it happened, how she had locked uh, my step-grandfather down the basement when he had gone down there in the morning to stoke the furnace, and then set fire to all the curtains in the house, and then ran out, for some reason, ran out into the alley stark naked, and was seen by neighbors running back and forth who saw the smoke pouring out of the house. And that's when the men came and took her off to the asylum. She died there maybe two years later in the month or something. And I am you know, always told in this sort of flat, unempathetic voice. So I don't know, maybe my mom was partly that way herself. I think I'm a little that way. You know, that was my that was my example. You know, you don't show anything. <laughs> like I said, I learned to dance, you know, I try not to do it. Well, you had uh, a mitigating factor that your mother and grandmother did not have, which was your psychiatrist. Right. So here's one more page with visualized uh, and invisibilized. And this is uh, kind of the incredibly chipper medical personnel. Uh, they're very jolly. They're like something out of a, a 60s commercial. Incredibly. And is this, is this exactly what they were doing? How, how did they relate to you? You know the show Mad Men? Yeah. That's this, that's this world. They get it so perfectly well. This part, that's the way the young doctors, my dad and all his friends were together. Uh, it was very much a man's world. It was very much... Um, it had to do with a camaraderie that was built around owning boats and big cars and sports cars and smoking and drinking. And that didn't happen to your father, though. Hmm? The big cars and sports cars and the boats didn't happen to your father. No, he didn't. Right, it turned out it was a big disappointment because to my mother because he he was a radiologist and they don't make as much as surgeons do. Yeah, so. But they still bought a lot of stuff. But yet she's constantly worried about money when it comes yeah. to your health care. Yeah, that was her biggest concern in life, was having enough money. She did grow up during the Depression on a farm. Um, and so, yeah, she was, we were always going to the poorhouse. And, uh, but she was very status-minded. Status so these next couple of slides are my favorite four pages, my favorite sequence in the books, uh, in the book, and I'm going to have to do them two pages at a time. It starts here with the, the stitches on your neck gradually getting more abstracted, more abstracted, and transforming into the stairs that that take you kind of up and away from the family. 
but actually it's a, it, it, it eventually leads to the light of the truth. And how does that relate back to the scene that we saw in the film? So this is, you know, your wound that you're literally ascending and going into as refuge. And we saw the scene in the film with young David diving into the paper and disappearing down kind of the, the esophagus into his stomach where it's also a refuge. I think for me as a visual kid growing up in family of a radiologist, and being familiar from the time I knew what I was looking at with x-rays, I knew that there was an inner world, that we all have an inside to us. When I got to be in college and switched my major to art that year, the first thing I wanted to take was anatomy, which I found for most art students was an abstraction and a bore, and nobody wanted to go to that class. But I couldn't wait to get in there because I had grown up with pictures of skulls, spines, rib cages, esophagus, you know, stomachs. And I had been told from the time I could understand what was going on that that was a picture of what was inside of us. And so it was a funny thing. I, you know, I guess I equated going into your body with finding it, I don't know, it was like, I don't know what I'm saying. I mean, you know what I'm saying? There's a truth there, I'm intuiting something, and I'm not, I can't get to it. There's a safety at turning into yourself, you're turning away from this world that's being so harsh to you. Right. And, right and after you know that, what it looks like in there. You know that there's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah, but I also know it's black. Yeah. Yeah, these glowing pages and architectures. Um, that's why I drew the little kid, you know, drawing. He's going into his own inner world. I actually made it into a real esophagus and a real stomach. And in there are the little cartoon characters that he wants to be, you know, he wants to live in a tomb world. To say that I'm unfamiliar with cartoons is not really completely accurate, because when I was a kid, I was Disney freak, but it was mostly with the animated movies, which would come out once a year, you know, so we would get, I would, nowadays kids go to the movies five times a day if they want, but then we waited all year for a new Disney movie to come out, and that's what I, that's where I wanted to live, I wanted to be, I wanted to be in a happy, colorful world. So, uh, here's your shrink. You depicted him as the 
Rabbit from Alice. And uh, can you tell the anecdote about uh, when you showed this book to your former psychiatrist? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, first of all, I knew I wanted to, uh, I very much wanted to include psychoanalysis in my book because it was such an important thing to me. It went on for 12 years and, I, and he really did save my life. But I'll tell you, there's nothing, there's probably nothing more visually uninteresting on earth than drawing psychoanalysis because it's just, you know, it's talking heads and how many angles can you take and you know, you can shoot him from below, you can shoot him from below, <laughs> in profile, full face, the eyes, you know, but after that, and besides, it's, you know, there's a lot of talk going on, and my book, my book was more about voicelessness than anything. Um, there's so many things to say in that regard. Um, but, well, let me just say this. When I went to my doctor first, I had no voice. I could it hurt to speak more than five words without getting a sore throat. And so with Harold Davidson, my doctor, who was a kind of a maverick, kind of combination Freudian Darwinist, um, he, the whole talking cure business became reversed. And because I couldn't speak, because I wasn't allowed to speak, I didn't know how to speak, I didn't know how to have a conversation, and because I was physically unable to speak for the most part, it, it started to be that I would go into his office, he would ask me how I was, if anything had happened to me interesting that day, or whatever he would do to start a conversation, and then he would talk to me, and he would tell me what it seemed I was feeling. Years later, because I kept in touch with him, I would always call him on New Year's, we'd talk for an hour, Years later, I asked him, Harold, how is it that you knew what to say to me so well? How could you talk to me with such accuracy for the most part? And he said, don't you know? He said, you were me. I was you. We had the same childhood. I knew. I knew you because you were me. And that just floored me because I've never had that, you know, I always, I never had that revelation on my own. So it was quite a, it was quite a thing for him to admit it to begin with because he always, throughout our long friendship, or whatever you want to call it, retained his doctorly, his, his professional distance up to a point. You know, later, when he got older, he'd tell me things about his life. But um, when the book came out, he was the first, first person I wanted to see it. And uh, so we sent him a copy, and I called him up, and he said, David, I loved your book. I read it three times. I said, that's great. He said, I just have one question. He said, why did you make me a bunny? <laughs> and I said, it's not a bunny. It's the white rabbit. It's the, you know, it's the white rabbit. He said, I know. I said, no, well, you don't know. It's, it, it, if you never thought about it, the white rabbit was Alice's usher into the underworld, into the subconscious world. And that's what you were for me. And, you know, the fact that after 45 minutes, you always said, well, David, our time is up. 
you know, make it even a better symbol because of the watch. And uh, he said, all right, but it's still a bunny. <laughs> you can't argue with somebody who's you know, absolutely convinced that a bunny is always a bunny. Sometimes a bunny is just a bunny. Um, speaking of reactions to the book, in the, in the very early pages, you've seen uh, your older brother sitting at the table, um, and you mentioned the two, the two of you, the two sons, and then he kind of disappears from the book. Yeah. And to a certain extent, he disappears from your life. Sure. But you sent him the book for a specific reason, as I recall. Can you, can you tell that story? Yeah. This is uh, probably the best story surrounding the publication of the book. Um, about six months before the book was to be printed, it was about to be sent to China to be printed. It was a February day, and I was in my studio in Michigan. I got a call from Bob Long, my editor, and he said, David, it's Bob. He said, uh, I want to know if you've read the New York Times today. And I said, Bob, I live on a prairie in Michigan. We don't get the Times out here. He said, well, I, in case you don't know it, it's available online. Um, I want you to go get a subscription to it if you have to, but I want you to read the front page. I'm not going to tell you what the article is. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And then I want you to call me back because I have some very difficult questions I have to ask you. So I dialed up the New York Times and right there on the front page was this long article about this woman, a young woman who had published her memoirs, or she hadn't published them, of a big New York publisher, I think it was HarperCollins, had published her book. They had published 75,000 copies. That puts a lot of trust in it. They were really going to sell the hell out of this book. This would be a bestseller. The day that the book came out, her sister called the Washington Post to tell them that not only was this supposed memoir full of little white lies or untruths, the whole thing was a lie from beginning to end. Nobody could figure out why this girl, nobody in the family could figure out why this young girl who had gone to school in the most vanilla uh, private school in one of the classiest suburbs of LA would write this book about growing up in drive-by shooting neighborhoods and being involved in the drug world and violence and uh, you know all the terrible things that she claimed that she had ruined her life. And so, while this young woman was going on Oprah and sitting on the couch and weeping and trying to explain why she had lied, and while HarperCollins was quickly shredding 75,000 copies of her book, Bob Weil wanted to know, David, he said, I know this has nothing to do with you. I know that everything in stitches is absolutely the truth, but I have to ask you, as your publisher, is there anybody, anybody alive in your family who might have remembered these things a little differently than the way you do? Because if there is going to be an incident like this, uh, you know, it's really changed the face of memoir publishing. 
considerably. He said, if, it, you know, if there's going to be an incident like this, we're going to stop publication of your book right now. And I said, well, the only, buddy, the only person around is my brother, but I don't talk with him. He said, your brother is still alive. <laughs> I said, yeah. And you don't talk? No, we don't talk. I don't, I don't, we don't like each other. I don't, I, uh, as a matter of fact, the last time we talked on the phone, for whatever reason it was, I told him to go fuck himself. I never wanted to hear from him again. I never wanted to have another conversation with him. I didn't want to even hear about his illnesses and his family problems. I just wanted him out of my life. And he agreed that that was a good idea. So, you know, so Bob said, um, well, does he know about this book? And I said, yes, I did email him and let him know I'm working on a book about our family. I didn't think it, was, it would be right to surprise anybody with that. <laughs> and he said, well, he's got to read it. We've got to let him read it and know what he thinks. So um, I agreed to, uh, to give my brother's permission to send him the book. And I, I emailed him and I said, uh, we'd like to show you a copy of my book. And he wrote back, and just one sentence, he said, bring it on, bro. <laughs> Whatever that meant. <laughs> and so we sent it to him. I gave him four days to read this book. You can read really in 40 minutes if you want to skim through it. And I called him up on Saturday morning, and I said, well, what did you think? And there was this long, dreadful pause on the other end of the phone. And then my brother, who's always spoke, as I tell it, in these Nixonian <laughs> sepulchral tones, just like our father, he said, David, your book blew me away. I said, it blew you away? What do you mean by that? He said, well, everybody looked the same. They acted the same. They said the things they always said. The house was exactly the way it always was. I mean, he said it all in all, it was like a snapshot of my own youth. And I thought, yes, <laughs> triumph. Yeah. And then he asked me if he could show it to his sons, and I said, of course. And he asked if he could show it to his therapist. And I was so happy to hear that he was finally in therapy. Um, and I, you know, I said, of course, you should probably learn a lot. Maybe you'll save some money. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, after the book was published, the next year, his wife died. And uh, that had been a very difficult, long, strange relationship. And uh, he was sort of relieved, I think, of a lot of things. And he actually drove from Denver out to, uh, or flew to uh, Michigan, and he spent two or three days with us on the farm. And, um, and we, we ate and talked and laughed and drank and reminisced. And at the end of the visit, we both agreed that um, anything, that we had avoided each other all of those years because anything or anyone that reminded us of that time in our lives was to be issued. And that's what we had done. And it felt really funny to be, uh, you know, that old and to have had this person out of my life for so long and then suddenly I had this brother again. 
And then two years later he died because his body expressed everything that he was totally incapable of expressing in any other way. And uh, so I can't say I miss him because I didn't really know him very well. leads her into the woods where she discovers this perfect child who doesn't move, doesn't talk, doesn't get her dress dirty because she never plays. And in fact, kids love it because they know she, it's never said that they know she's a doll. And the only problem with the perfect child is that her head keeps coming off. <laughs> so the next slide shows this rather terrifying scene where Ulele has gotten inside the head is talking through the mouth. The mother actually is, you know, she's kind of a dog. She thinks the perfect child is speaking to her. She doesn't realize it's her own kid. And this is where the head starts hopping around the garden, frightens, frightens away the fox. It's a very bizarre tale. You know, it's published back before marketing people had control of everything. <laughs> there, there was a lot of freedom in kids' books back in the 80s. visited a particular elementary school in Michigan that said, 
play the, play the woman who was the teacher of the disabled came and said, that's our favorite book. We read that book every week a couple of times. And I said, why? And she said, well, you know, Imogene's Antlers, it's like, it's like having a wheelchair. You know, just part of you, you can't, you can't get rid of it, you can't deny it's there, you just learn to live with it. And that was when it began to dawn on me that maybe there was something autobiographical about my work. Just maybe. <laughs> you also illustrate books written by Sarah, your wife. Yes. I had to throw this one in because I'm a librarian. Okay. Um, and I just wanted people, and of course Sarah's a gardener, so this also has a, a lot of personal, I wanted people to see this because you've seen this dark, moody, um, chiaroscuro of stitches, and then you see this explosion of Raoul Duby-esque color. And I, I just wanted people to know that, that, that David can do this. Pretend to be happy. That's right. This is the umbrella in your shitstorm. Yeah. It's um, and so I turn it to the, the audience to see if you have questions for David yourselves. Yes, sir.
and you won't have to deal with folks dressing up in costume. You can just go see some wonderful personal uh, comics. So think about that. And have Mocha Art Fest. Uh, Mocha is the Museum of Comic and Cartoon Art. Okay. Thank you again for coming, and we'll see you next time.